You're listening to Live Wild Radio, the part-time adventure podcast. Join us as we explore how outdoor adventures build mind, body, and spirit. And I'm pretty excited to have our guest join us today. We're going to talk about a few things I'm really stoked about, and that is adventure racing and humanitarian work. And how the heck do you couple the two together? Mm-hmm. We're happy to have Tessa Jennison on, and she's a four-time adventure racing world, world series athlete. She's one of Canada's few uh, female adventure event directors, and she participated as a TAC in the world's toughest race, Equal Challenge Fiji, hosted by Bear Grylls. What's a TAC? <laughs> yeah, so uh, TAC, as we uh, say it, is an acronym for Team Assistant Crew. In Eco Challenge Fiji, there were teams of five. Four were the athletes that were out competing on the race course, and the fifth was the TAC. So there was one team assistant crew assigned to each, or not assigned to, like they, we all registered as a team. So um, my role, rather than being out on the race course, was to support the team through the adventure got it so tons of back behind the scenes logistics and everything that's that's pretty cool <laughs> so welcome welcome to live wild radio i'm Catherine. i'm winston <laughs> and this is tessa <laughs> so um yeah thanks for for joining us today and uh we want to ask you well first of all did you meet bear grills like when you were yeah, <laughs> yeah, he was really yeah i met him and i met producer mark burnett like um, the adventure racing community, uh, as a, it's a global sport, but, um, simply due to the nature of the sport, there aren't a huge number of people who, who participate in it. So you tend to see the same faces over and over again at these events. So, um, yeah, it was, it was really uh, a neat experience, but the, the crew was very immersed in the experience with the athletes and, and with the crew members. So, yeah. Yeah. Cause how many people participate in that ish? Uh, there were 66 teams, so times five um, yeah. team, and then like hundreds of volunteers and, uh, you know, the whole production team that was filming the event. There were, there were like hundreds of people involved in that one. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very cool. So <clears throat> just for the listeners that, and watchers, uh, that aren't familiar, what is adventure racing? So adventure racing is uh, a multi-sport adventure type of uh, activity where participants use a map and a compass to navigate through an otherwise unmarked, uh, usually a wilderness race course. And so they use their map and their compass to get their way from point to point to point using primarily uh, human powered modes of transportation. So hiking or running, Paddle sport can involve canoeing, kayaking, whitewater rafting, pack rafting, that type of thing. Um, and obviously mountain biking is a, is a huge part of the races. Often there are ropes courses integrated in. Uh, and depending on the location of the event and the event director, um, every once in a while, uh, there'll be, you know, sort of random things incorporated that are specific to that region. So in Eco Challenge Fiji, there were some uh, traditional local uh, boat type of um, features integrated in into the course as well, like the Billy Billy rafts and uh, and these sort of kamikau um, sailing canoe outrigger type boats. So. Yeah. And so do you always uh, participate in a team? Is that the idea? It's always with a team or can you ever do it on your own? 
So different races have different configurations. The World Series of Standard configuration is teams of four, co-ed. Um, other races will have teams of anywhere from solo athletes uh, up to four. Um, so, you know, solo pairs, three or four, depending on the race. And the race durations can vary from a few hours to several days in length. So what's your favorite kind of race? I really like the expedition races, the multi-day ones. Yeah. Those are my favorite. Okay. How did you get into adventure racing? Well, I, uh, <laughs> many, many years ago, my band, I, I used to play with the band. Um, we were hired to perform at the opening ceremonies of a festival that the city of Waterloo was getting started. It might've been the region. I, I can't recall, but uh, it was called EcoFest. And they had booked a keynote speaker who happened to be a past participant of Eco Challenge, I believe it was Eco Challenge Borneo, back when this show used to run on the Discovery Channel in the 90s. And so um, he had a whole presentation, you know, talking about his adventure, talking about the relationships between, you know, humans and the and the wilderness environment. And he had footage from the show and he had pictures of like destroyed feet and all these amazing stories. And, uh, and I was like hooked immediately. I was just like, I need to do this, whatever this sport is. So I went up and I talked to him afterwards and asked him for recommendations. I'm like, how do you get into it? And he said, find local races. You know, here's a list that I can think of off the top of my head of stuff that's sort of within Ontario. And from there, just meeting people. And like I said, the community is really small and tight knit. So asking a lot of questions and getting involved in the sport. So my first race was in 2010 and I signed up solo. I uh, went to army surplus on Victoria street in Kitchener and I bought like a $4 compass and my cousin kind of helped me put together the gear I would need for the race. Cause he's very outdoorsy and had a lot of the equipment already. So I borrowed and, you know, went through bargain bins to, assemble all the items that I needed in order to participate and then I went and the night before the event they they have a pre-race briefing and uh, all the teams are in in a room and everybody gets their maps and you sit down and you can plot plot your UTM coordinates UTM is an acronym for a universal transverse mercator and it's the set of numbers that you use to uh, figure out like the latitude and the longitude and where your point is on the map. I had no idea what a UTM was. I had no idea how to use a compass. So I just uh, went and sat down at another team's table and I was like, guys, I don't have any idea what I'm doing. Can you uh, give me some advice? So, you know, that team kind of gave me a quick lowdown on how to figure out my map and you know, kind of got me oriented um and uh, I just sort of took it from there like we started uh the following morning at 6 a.m start it was pitch black you know the the start line uh they don't use a gun but they you know whatever it was I don't remember <laughs> they went off and we all ran off into the woods and I was just like terrified of being left by myself in the forest so I just started chasing people <laughs> hoping that <laughs> went the right way I got really lucky. In hindsight, I, I got really lucky by following the right people. My strategy in the beginning was, I'm not even going to look at my map. I'm just going to follow the lights in the forest because everyone had headlamps on and just, you know, get to a team and then look for the next light that was up ahead and, and so kind of leapfrogged through these teams while they were all navigating and figuring oh, out smart. 
just panic ran you know <laughs> connected the dots till I kind of got up to the front and then the sun came up and I felt a little bit less freaked out but that first race was uh, it was a 12 hour up in the Muskoka's and it was an amazing experience it was the first time I'd really had this like self-earned sense of achievement um you know of really just kind of being out there and, and figuring it out and meeting new people and I was I was hooked by some miracle of fate I made it through the race and got to the finish line which also in hindsight I like i I should not have been able to complete it. I just got lucky. <laughs> I just followed the right people. But, uh, you know, from there, I, I started um, meeting more racers and, and uh, I signed up for a six day expedition called Raid the North Extreme in the West Kootenai region of British Columbia. And I joined a team that I had never really met the people, the one guy I kind of knew, but, um, you know, I decided to sign up for you know, what was one of the, at the time, more prestigious expedition races with very little experience in the mountains and just went for it. And it was, uh, it was crazy. It was insane. And it was tons of fun. And again, I was just like more hooked that race had a little bit more, uh, you know, we didn't, uh, we didn't like finish, we ended up getting short coursed and, you know, but, but to be out there for the amount of time that we were, and to have, have gotten as far as we did felt pretty amazing. How long was it? Like, was it a multi-day? Yeah, it was a six-day race. Okay, okay. <clears throat> cool, cool. And so, because you didn't have compass navigation experience when you first started, <laughs> and uh, but did you have other outdoor experience? A little bit. My uh, my uncles used to uh, coordinate. Well, they think they, apart from COVID, they always had every year done a Algonquin canoe trip. So. I would go on that and I, I loved hiking and such, but I hadn't really done a whole ton of it. So I wasn't super familiar uh, with, you know, being out there, especially not, you know, kind of roughing it for days. Uh, I definitely would say that I was not an experienced mountain biker at the time. That first race that I did, I rode the bike that my mom bought me in grade seven. Um, and I don't know how it didn't fall apart through the race, but I made it through. <laughs> Again, miracles, right? Um, but yeah, so after that, I, you know, I kind of smartened up and I got a better bike. And I, you know, I just kind of picked up things as I went. And it's so experience-based. Like, I, you, can, you can ask as many questions as you can think of to as many experienced racers as possible. But a lot of these things you just have to learn for yourself and experience as you go so basically when it is a team if i'm not mistaken uh everybody's got to finish together too don't they yeah you have to stay together through the whole race yeah so it's one of those things where it's not just you know having a team where you got one or two fit people yeah but it's like coming up with a strategy because like i i did one adventure race years ago and it was i was the strongest cyclist because i've been a mountain biker my whole life yeah. And I can't run for shit, <laughs> you know? So it was one of those things where, you know, a couple of the slower bikers, like I was actually towing them, yep. you know, and, and that kind of thing. So it's kind of an interesting, not just like, obviously if you do it solo, it's just a, a, a personal test, but it really is like a neat thing of like personal communication. For uh, sure. Yeah. The small group dynamics, makes a it's a really interesting component of the sport 
uh, especially if you don't already have a rapport with the people that you're racing with, because you're learning things about each other as you go. And especially in expeditions, people are at their absolute like best where they're just like on top of the world and feeling amazing. And then within the same race, they'll be like the, at their absolute worst, you know, when you're tired, like beyond tired, like hallucinating tired when you're hungry and everything hurts and like people just get they discover like darkness in themselves I think that they didn't know was there and moments of elation that they didn't know were possible and the neat thing about experiencing that with a team is everyone kind of hits those things at different stages through the race and learning how to get through it together is really um for sure a super important part of it because even the str- physically the strongest athlete, um, you know, they will have moments where mentally they're, they're broken and their teammates need to put them back together. But it's also such a diverse sport of all the different elements of it. Um, you know, obviously being very strong is an asset, but also being, you know, very mentally strong is, is a very important aspect to having that will to continue. And, being able to let go of your ego. So, you know, if you're physically the strongest and you're having a weak moment, allowing your teammate to carry your bag for you for a while or tow you on the bike, like you have to be able to move as a unit. And that means there's going to be different people with different strengths at different times. Yeah. And it's sort of something that we talk about on this podcast all the time, which is modern life uh, is for us in the West is structured in such a way that if you wanted a life of virtually no discomfort, you can have it, right? But I don't think we're wired for that. Like to to truly like live our biggest or best lives or or like fully realize our potential, um, I think we're supposed to be uncomfortable. Not all the time, you know. But I I I found that with like you know mountain bike races and you know, backpacking expeditions and, you know, various types of things. It's like finding that thing that, that tests you. Uh, that's, and that's when you get better. Yeah. Grow, right. When you hit your personal limit and you need to move past it. So when I uh, separated from my marriage, I decided to go climb um, a mountain. It was Mount Marcy in New York state. It's about 5,500 feet, 5344, but who's counting? All right. (laughs) (laughs) But you really climb about 3,500, right. Is what you're doing about that up and down. And I was not in shape. I was much heavier and, um, first event of its kind. And and it didn't break me down and build me back up the way I wanted it to, but I have a feeling something like this would (laughs) like a multi day. So just saying for all those people that are looking for that experience, I mean, I feel like this is what I should have done, (laughs) which I, it's funny because I haven't thought about it in years, but years ago I heard about it and I was like, yeah, I want to do that. But I knew I wasn't in the shape for it. I would never care about the running, maybe trail running. Uh, Yeah. It's bad for my knees, but everything else would be appealing to me. Like the mountain biking, um, the kayaking, the navigation to me that's it's it's very fun mm-hmm. yeah so now that we're much fitter or i'm much fitter i would i think i have my eye on that for so, sure yeah so as you were saying it's the mental it's the emotional not only the physical right and the teamwork yep yeah it really tests on all levels so all right 
So, and you've got this other passion, which is Waterloo Region Crossing. How did you take that passion of adventure racing and how did that all start into, how do we support the community? Where did that come from? Yeah, uh, well, I, I grew up in KW and um, I've always been very, um, you know, invested in, in my community. I ran for city council in 2014. And at that point, um, I was running for a seat in the downtown ward in Ward 9, which contains a lot of the social services that are located downtown. Uh, and so at that point, I toured um, several of the shelters. And it was very eye-opening for me to see this other side of, um, of our community that is so often backburnered and ignored by the vast majority of people going about their day-to-day -day lives. And, um, and so, you know, that, that kind of stuck with me. I did not end up um, securing that seat on council, obviously, but um, I volunteered at the youth shelter at Roof for a period of time. And uh, I went and taught music lessons to some of the, the youth that were there. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess I was working for a small female founded clean technology company. We were with the Accelerator Center in like 2018, 2019. Um, and so I guess it would have been 2017, 2018. And uh, that winter was particularly rough. And in January, there were several consecutive nights where it was dipping below minus 20. And the record and all of our local media was focused on, um, you know, how this polar vortex was impacting citizens who were experiencing homelessness and how the shelter system was really inundated. There was such a need. And at that time, the company that I was, was with, we were very small. There were only three of us. And we were having kind of a slower period of time. And I said, you know, I think we should use this time to do something for our community. And I think we need to, you know, take this opportunity to raise awareness about this issue that we're facing. I think we should walk across the region. And I think we should show people what it looks like, um, you know, what that distance looks like on foot for all these people who live in our community who are getting pushed further and further out due to increases in, in housing prices and loss of affordable housing and rapid gentrification and development in the core. Um, and my boss at the time said, sure, let's do it. And she had never even done a five kilometer run in her life. She had no frame of reference for what 65 kilometers looked like when traveled on foot, but she said yes anyways. Um, she's a powerhouse lady and I really admire her. And so, um, she and our other colleague, Dave, um, we just decided to do this thing. And so we threw a whole bunch of our, our time and energy into preparing for this, um, this journey we were gonna make. We did a bunch of fundraising, we talked to our local media sources. And then I asked um, my friend, Brad Bomber, who I knew through adventure racing to kind of help me um, plan this out from a sort of a safety structure kind of perspective. Um, and he, you know, he was totally on board. And so he provided support to us through this event because I knew what I was doing. Uh, I'd never done anything like it in the wintertime, but I had an idea of what I was getting into. And Dave, our other colleague, he had done a 12 hour adventure race with me and he's done some crazy stuff. Like he's like jumped out of airplanes and he's sailed across the Atlantic. So 
he had a better frame of reference as well, but I just, I wanted to make sure that the support structure was there for, for Ashley, who'd never done anything like it before. And so within a matter of weeks, we went from the conception of the idea through to the completion of this journey across the region. And I'd also asked a, a friend of mine who does um, a lot of camera work and, and uh, film he's a film industry professional, if he would come out and shoot some footage of us. So he actually put together a crew and uh, they came out and they, they shot the whole journey. So we had this, you know, broadcast quality footage of this journey that we'd made. And from there, it just kind of, it just kind of grew. Like I was able to take my knowledge and my experience that I had acquired through years of adventure racing and leverage that to help create an event for the community that was, um, you know, it was a, a big enough undertaking that a lot of people wanted to do it. You know, they wanted to do this thing where they were doing it for a good cause, but it was also, it was bigger than, um, you know, it was a bigger commitment than most people had ever, had ever done. Like most of the people who signed up for the event had never done anything like it before. So just kind of had that, you know, that personal, um, you know, setting a personal goal that was really high. I think that was an appeal for people. Um, but yeah, between that first year where it was the three of us to the next year where we had over a hundred people, it became this, you know, this more of a, almost like a pilgrimage across the region for a lot of people in the winter time doing this journey. And yeah, it just, it just kind of grew. And I, I was able to call on the experience of friends of mine who were adventure event directors to get their advice on how to scale the event safely and how to do it in a way that was, um, you know, marketable and interesting, but then also had this very important sort of goal and mission behind it to constantly tie it back into the educational aspect of like, you know, yes, this journey is, is cool and it's big and it's neat, but imagine what it would be like if you strip away all of the things that make it fun and comfortable. What would it be like if you didn't have a support crew? What would it be like if you didn't have waterproof boots or you didn't have snow pants or you didn't have a jacket or you didn't have somewhere to go at the end? And this was your reality is living outside all the time. So, you know, that, that is grounded in, in everything to do with the event, that educational piece. So yeah, it just, um, I think it helps instill a lot of perspective and uh, you know, it's a good reminder of how, um, how a lot of people in our community have a very different relationship with the outdoors when they're not there by choice, they're there by necessity. So. Yeah. yeah. So with, uh, you know, from the, from the first year, so 2018 was the first year. 2018 was the first year with the, the three of us. Yeah. Yeah. And then so 2019 was the bigger year. Yeah. And then you got kicked in the pants in 2020. No, 2020 happened. Oh, okay. A few weeks later, COVID hit. Oh, okay. So you, so could, you got it in, in 2020. We had even more people. We had, I think like 120 people involved plus all of the sponsors and donors and, you know, community partners and all that like there were about 120 participants in the event and then everybody else on top of it so okay so, so this was the first year that you had to kind of go virtual this year yes this past february was yeah. the first year that we went virtual yeah and we had around uh, 30 participants who signed up and they 
made their own course. They chose their own distance. They did it on the day they wanted. We had kind of like a time frame. Everything had to be really flexible because of COVID. So um, it, it was very different for sure. But a lot of people went out and took photos and videos and uh, you know tracked their, their journey so they could send kind of a map of what they had done. And we ended up raising over $15,000 this year for the working center. So it, uh, it was definitely worthwhile to, to try the virtual approach. And I think in future, I'll probably offer a hybrid because mm-hmm. we had people in other parts of Ontario who were able to participate because they could do it in their location. So that was actually one of my questions is, I think this is a really inspiring idea is how can people in other communities do it? So that, so what, what I'm hearing you say, this is gonna be part of the plan that people can still be a part of this. Yeah, yeah. I, think I, I was, you know, kind of, tossing it around in my head for quite a while how do I replicate this in other communities and I think I think that's probably going to be the most feasible way to do it and there are there are other events that address this subject like um coldest night of the year for example is one that's been replicated in multiple cities very successfully it's a different type of event because you're out for you know a couple of hours rather than Mm -hmm. an entire like you know, a lot of our participants are out there for 20 hours straight, uh, which is you know, definitely the, the thing that makes it a little bit <laughs> of a different kind of commitment. But, um, you know, it, these types of events, uh, they they have been replicated successfully. So it's, it's something that I'll keep my eye on for the future as COVID, you know, whether it allows us to gather again next yeah. year. If there's a lot of uncertainty around events right now, which makes it hard to plan. Yeah, because you have this as a winter event, but you also had in the past as a summer event as well. Is that right? It was a different event that we were starting to build for the summer. So we've done a pilot of it, um, not this past summer, but the previous one. And that was an adventure race, an urban rural adventure race. So a little bit different than a wilderness one. It was um, designed as an introduction to adventure racing, and it was in collaboration with uh, SASC, the Sexual Assault Support Center of Waterloo Region. So a lot of the education we were tying to that was, um, you know, the situation in our community where, you know, there's an extremely... uh, significant issue around domestic violence and sexual assault within the region of Waterloo uh, that not a lot of people I don't think are, are aware of how um, how much of an issue it is. And at that point in time, uh, Sexual Assault Support Center had like 140 women on their wait list, which is like a year long wait wow. for receiving counseling services. So we wanted to draw attention to that. And we wanted to create an event that was very empowering and that, uh, you know, possibly survivors would come out and participate and get that that sense of accomplishment and camaraderie that comes from adventure sports. So that was part of the goal for that event as well. But uh, yeah, we, we did the pilot the first year with a group of about 10 of us um, to kind of test the course and, and make sure that it was going to, um, you know, flow the way we wanted it to all the pieces fall in place. Cause multi-sport adventure race has uh, some different pieces to that puzzle than a a trek where everyone's just on foot. Like we had a canoeing section and we had mountain biking sections and a floaty section. (laughs) So there's a lot of, um, a lot of partnerships involved in that event with different, uh, you know, different organizations within the community. So 
because there's so many moving pieces, that one is pretty much impossible to run as a virtual. So Mm -hmm. I don't know what's going to happen with that. It'll depend on COVID, I guess, on, uh, you know, right now I wouldn't be able to get event permits. Talk a bit about how big of an issue homelessness is in our region. I'm not actually the best expert to speak on you know, the state of homelessness currently, uh, because I don't work directly in that sector. I, you know, I run events and then we fundraise and, and all the money goes to the working center and they're the experts in that field and, and they run the programs and they have the facilities um, and the services. As far as I am aware, as of maybe a year and a half ago, there was a seven plus year wait for affordable housing with over 4,000 families on that wait list for affordable housing within our community. I believe that that has, um, I believe that that has probably gotten worse as our community has become virtually inaccessible to first time home buyers. I think probably that issue will continue to get worse as our housing market just gets completely out of control, right? I know that there has been a lot of government funding come in since COVID has has hit to better fund a lot of the social services that are in place. But yeah, I just, like I said, I'm, I'm not uh, kind of, you know, on the ground in that sector myself. So... Yeah. I think people have like a, a an idea of like a homeless person as either somebody mentally ill, somebody on drugs, you know, it, it, it's not often sort of um, because, it's, you know, it's not something you see sort of on the street that it, a lot of times it's people who are, we'll call it marginally housed. <laughs> um, it's families, it's people with jobs that are just barely getting by. And that's, that is the piece of the puzzle that a lot of people don't see or are unaware of. Um, for example, there used to be a lot of transitional housing in the community. And unfortunately that transitional housing, um, you know, it was what a lot of people would have called like slum housing where you have, you know, a person who owns a house who has, you know, partitioned it into seven bedrooms and they rent the rooms out and the house is, you know, there's no security, Um, you know, there's possibly issues with addiction in, you know, within that house, but a lot of those houses have been purchased and torn down and condos are going up. So a lot of the affordable housing that was downtown that was keeping a roof over people's heads is disappearing and it's being replaced with apartments or condo units that are, you know, the rent level is far beyond what somebody on ODSP would make as their max. So like if you only make, or if you only have, you know, $1,200 a month um, at your disposal, you can't rent a $1,500 a month apartment unit, you know, like you just, there's not enough money there. Um, But then yes, there are tons of families in need um, you know, who, who maybe are able to pay their rent, but then aren't able to buy groceries or aren't able to, you know, pay for their car insurance or keep their car or whatever it is. Like, it's just, it's, there are so many people who are right on that line and, uh, homelessness is not an issue that is, you know, it is, is just impacting, you know, people with mental health issues or addiction issues, um, 
And I think that the most important thing to starting to address these issues, like yes, housing is important, but supported housing is, is very important because, um, you know, like you can stick a bunch of people in empty hotel rooms, but if they need support structures in place, then, you know, it, it just doesn't go as smoothly as it could. You need addiction support. You need, um, you know, you need those counseling services in place to help people move through their dark periods of time and into a better place. Mm-hmm. So one of the, the groups you were supporting this year was, or the group was the Working Action Center. But can you explain that, that concept to people who don't know? So the way that the Working Center works is they have multiple different um uh, I guess uh, there's so many different pieces to that puzzle. So there's the working center, which is, um, you know, this space that provides a whole uh, array of different services to people. You know, they can do their taxes there. They can get mm-hmm. job training. They can, um, you know, basically try to seek out employment. They also run St. John's kitchen, which is a soup kitchen where they have, Um, medical staff there they have washrooms where people can go and have showers and things like that they run a couple of different thrift stores uh, and then they also run the queen street commons cafe they run um, fresh ground which is another cafe that's closer to the kitchener market Um, they run the recycle cycles bicycle shop and so a lot of these different enterprises that they have um they're also training opportunities for people to get working skills. Um, there is a, a catering um, service that they have. They have a tech recycling program. Like there's all these different, um, you know, initiatives that they have. And then they employ people who are, you know, looking to get into the workforce and who need to build those skills and, and they employ them there. And a lot of people who work there are, our volunteers as well. It's pretty amazing all the different all of the different pieces of that puzzle that come together to make yeah. it work. It's it's really like this village integrated into the downtown core. That's really interesting. Um, I th- I think that you know when people do adventure races, right? They really get in touch with themselves and do hard things. And sixty five kilometers in a day, if they choose to do that, that's that's pretty tough. I mean, I've done the 65 or the 60 kilometer weekend to end breast cancer years ago. And that was a weekend. And, um, you know, that was in the city, mm-hmm. but nonetheless, that's a challenge what you're doing. And, and so in that event, um, whatever range of distance they decide to do, are there meeting points or are people pretty much on their own in their teams and you kind of walk together as a group if you're on that same track? Yeah, so we've, we've done it a couple of different ways. So there's there's three different distance options that people can choose when they sign up. So there's a 10K, there's a 28K, and there's the 65K. And I found that about half of the people tend to do the 65 kilometer one, and then the other half are kind of split between the 10 and the 28. And so along the route, it's a it's a route that they don't have to use a map and a compass to find. It's a, it's a predetermined route. Everyone gets a set of instructions on how to get through it. Uh, and it mostly follows the Grand River trail system. So a lot of the times on the Walter Bean Trail, um, which follows the Grand River. So we all start together. And then I have uh, a number of volunteer Trek crew members who were, were kind of like the staff of the event. So they disperse 
through this, this group because uh, inevitably people move at different paces. And so we end up as this kind of giant snake of, of people, you know, the front is two hours ahead of the back by the time we get to the end. And so the crew all have radios and, and uh, there are 10 different checkpoints along the route of the trek where the support crew, uh, we have a support crew vehicle with a paramedic um, who, who will be available for if people need blister care or whatnot. Uh, and we, we borrow an RV, which is pretty fun. Uh, so, so last year we had two RVs because we knew that the group was going to kind of spread out with different paces. So these RVs were leapfrogging from like one checkpoint to the next checkpoint. And all these checkpoints are locations of significance in the region, um, whether ecologically, culturally, uh, you know, what, or, or whatnot, uh, historically significant. So, um, we tie this education piece into it so people better understand, you know, the region we pass, like we pass an indigenous village uh, site from thousands of years ago uh, where they, they found artifacts when they were doing the surveying for building the new highway seven extension going out to, toward Breslau. Um, so, you know, that's, that's one of our checkpoints, that location. Um, the Kissing Bridge in West Montrose is, you know, a historic uh, architectural feature in the region, Pioneer Tower, um, all of these different spots through the region. And one of the ways that we, we tied in uh, education for kids into this is I was going into um, schools. I went into elementary um middle school and high school and I'd give a presentation to the kids about the track and why we were doing it and the situation with homelessness in our community to build that you know sort of that root of empathy and that understanding mm -hmm. from a young age obviously teaching them you know at age appropriate levels uh, some of this stuff and then invited them to create the artwork for these different checkpoints based on you know, giving them a, a worksheet with a few important facts about each of these places. And the kids did an art competition. And so I'd select, you know, a winner from, you know, for each of these checkpoints. And then they had them made into buttons. And these buttons were given to the participants of the track when they reached each of these locations along the, along the route. And, you know, my, my first thought with that checkpoint button project was that the important part beyond all else was the educational component for the kid. And I definitely underestimated the motivation factor for the participants in the trek. Like trekkers would get to a checkpoint like 15 hours into the event and the medical crew would be like, hey, are you okay? Do you need anything? And they're like, just give me my button. Where's my button? It's their badge. <laughs> like this is this, you know, matter of pride of collecting all the buttons on the route and like getting in. It's some like, you know, eight-year-old's artwork that they've hand drawn. It's so cute. Like it's just, it was awesome. That's one of my favorite parts about the track is the the buttons for people. They just and they put them all over their backpack and their, <laughs> their jackets and stuff. So so with this whole initiative and where you're going with it, what's success for you? Success is, um, you know, obviously raising some money for the working center and raising awareness about this issue. 
but success is also, you know, somebody accomplishing something that they didn't think they were capable of. And going into, you know, going into this kind of track, um, you know, maybe with a goal to finish the 10K, getting to the 10K finish line. And, you know, that's an accomplishment of its own. But we had people who were like, can I go to the, can I keep going? You know, can I, can this not be my finish line? Can I like keep, keep trying and you know, pushing themselves farther than they thought? And that, that's always a really neat thing too, to see, to see people like, you know, really pushing their personal uh, boundaries and, and moving into that next level of, of personal accomplishment. It's really neat to see. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing when you can combine like doing something good for the community, you know, and, uh, you know, something that, that has that personal growth element because so many of the different types of events you can do, like whether it's a mountain bike race or, you know, whatever, um, often don't have, you know, they're, 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 it's, it's selfish on our part, right? Like, like we're doing it just for ourselves. Um, and that, that's where having something where you get that element, right. That, that challenging yourself part, but it's not just a, uh, a thing where we're so many, so many of the different events I've done over my life were significant to me, but would make no difference if I hadn't done them to the world. Right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. I've done yeah. lots of ones too <laughs> yeah you know so that's where it was something like this it's like kind of combining those two there's that there's also a trickle down effect from what you're doing because you're showing people you're stronger than you think so then it puts plants the seed what else can i do aside from it being physical mm-hmm. like other challenges wow you know these people came together for this cause well what am i passionate about maybe i can make a difference I try. It's a neat thing to see for sure. And, and, uh, it's also really wonderful to see people's families getting behind them because there's that fundraising component too. Right. And, and, uh, and their family kind of following the journey or showing up on the, on the course to like cheer them on is really neat too. Or, you know, when people drive by with their, you know, their spouse drives by with their kids in the car and like, go mommy, go, you know, it's, it's just really, that part of it is really neat to see too. Yeah. It's very cool. Yeah. So if people want to get involved, um, where do they go? So right now, uh, the, the events situation is complicated because of COVID, but mm-hmm. if people want to get involved in Waterloo region crossing, um, for the winter trek event, it's, uh, all of our information is at waterlooregioncrossing.com. And that's the best place to go for information. Uh, there's a Facebook group as well for participants. Um, all of our, our Facebook and our Twitter are at WR uh, Crossing Trek. Got it. It'll be in the show notes. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, in, in terms of like adventure sport in general, the Canadian Adventure Racing Association is a really good place to start for an events calendar for the year. Um, I know that Get Out There magazine has a lot of information on adventure events as well. So yeah, there's, I think there are 
organizations that are hopeful of being able to run events this year and are, you know, really kind of planning for that. But uh, yeah, it's, it's hard. I think it depends on where in Canada they are or where in the world, like in the States, adventure races are still going full steam ahead. But in Canada, I think, especially in Ontario, I have a lot of apprehension about, um, you know, building out an event right now, knowing that very easily, you know, we wouldn't get the permit or not allowed to gather or what, whatever. Like, it's just too hard to predict right now. So, yeah. Yeah. So this is going to be a thing for people planning for the future because eventually, you know, like the, the, the Spanish flu of like 1919 eventually passed. <laughs> yes. And it was like a hundred years before we had to do this shit. So. Yes. So the short and easy answer is, if you want information on our events, to go to Waterloo Region Crossing. <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, people can still train on their own. And the fact of that matter is, of the matter is that you did it virtually this year. So, I mean, like, we're we're here training our butts off so that we can go bikepacking and mountain biking. And um, I would still be interested. Like, I'm really interested in this concept because I'd have to check it out. But so um, kayaking, trail running, mountain biking, those are usually the big three in the summer. Or canoeing. Uh, or in my, in my event, in the race. Well, you, well, you mentioned the floaty, which is fun. Yeah. Canoeing. Yes, that one is bike, trek, canoe, and floaty. Yeah. Yeah, whereas, whereas the... Uh... And that's also 65K, right? Like no, the... that, that one has various different levels as well. Um, and the course will have to change because some land permissions have, have okay. changed. Okay. Yeah, the, the, the thing you wanted to, if you're doing just a regular adventure race, they can end up, uh, it's almost like, like a blank canvas for, you know, like promoters to make interesting things. Yeah, uh, and you play with the geography as much as you can too, right? You want to feature whatever is available in your area. Um, so to, to answer your question about the race across Waterloo Region, that one had a 25 kilometer, a 50 kilometer, and a 100 kilometer uh, course option. There were three different courses. Uh, and then to be completed within a 12 hour window of time. Okay. So uh, the only one that was going to be competitive was the 100 kilometer one. And then I wanted to leave the 25 and the 50 kilometer as non-competitive because yeah. the trek is non-competitive. And that also creates a completely different type of experience for people where they're really just you know, the pressure is off if they want it to be, or if they want to have a personal challenge, they can, you know, try to do their, their personal best or set a personal goal. But um, yeah, so the with the adventure race, we wanted sort of both options. So yeah, yeah. great team building, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And a good cause. Well, thanks for being on and sharing the story and behind the scenes and, and, and how you got into it. So yeah, because like anytime that we can get people more involved in their communities, uh, yeah. I think it makes things better, you know, and especially, especially now, because we're all so isolated, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like essentially, you, you, this is my community right here. This is it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my household is my community right now, for sure. You know, so uh, I think once the, once the rains are lifted, we're all going to be, uh, uh, either uh, afraid of each other um, or uh, people who are never huggers are going to be huggers. 
It's like, <laughs> please, oh, <laughs> you know, daily dosage. Yeah. You know, so it's going to be one of the two. <laughs> you know, there you go. Yeah. yeah. So as everybody saw, we're going to put everything in the show notes. Um, you know, obviously this year's event has passed. So everybody listening, um, look it up, put it on your calendar, whether, whether you can do it in person, you can do it virtually. Uh, you're even going to be able to do it virtually, even if you're not from this area. So, you know, there'll be fun ways to do it. Like, you know, our one um, listener from Texas, yeah, North Texas. Yeah he can cross wherever the hell he is in Texas. Uh, you know, (laughs) yeah. Tessa, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It makes the world a little better place. So work hard, play dirty. (laughs) Bye. See you next time. (laughs) Yeah.